Uh, Hey, if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel. We are going to be in Daniel chapter 5 this morning and uh, look forward to continuing this journey through this really incredible book. Um, It's kind of amazing all that we've seen take place, and it's easy sometimes to lose sight of the bigger picture because we're taking a week off between chapters, essentially. And so just to catch us back up real quick, let's make sure we're all on the same page here. Uh, Right, Daniel chapter one, we're introduced to Daniel, and he's got these friends, Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And those four guys are part of a group of captives who have been taken from their homeland, taken from Judea, all the way up to the capital uh, of Babylon, and they're up there as essentially hostages, right? They've been captured. They're members of the royal family. They're important people. And the king there in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is saying, this is going to be a great way to make sure these people don't misbehave. I'm going to take the cream of the crop, and they're going to be mine. Well, he begins this process of training them. No sense wasting talent if you've got it there. And so he begins to train them so that they can be advisors to him. Uh, But Daniel and his friends refuse to adopt every aspect of the culture that they've come into. They stand strong. They remember Yahweh. They remember their faith in the God that they grew up with. Uh, And so then we walk with them through a variety of trials, the food they eat, right? This dream where the king says, if you don't tell me both the dream and the interpretation, I'm going to kill you. Uh, And then there's the fiery furnace, right? And all of these things leading up to what? Well, that's, that's kind of the crazy thing. Because Daniel leaves a huge gap between chapter four, where he interprets another dream for the king, and Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy, and then he's not crazy anymore because he submitted to the king of the universe. Uh, And then all of a sudden, Daniel chapter five opens up, and we've got something entirely different going. It says King Belshazzar. Now, time out. Time out. King Belshazzar, who is this? And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Like, we knew he went crazy, but. We didn't expect him to just kind of drop off the face of the planet, right? Well, what's happened is, is so many times, how many, how many of you are writers? This is going to be the easiest show of hands I've ever done. We've got one, two, two. All right. Yeah, not so many, all right? But if you've ever been writing, one of the most frustrating things about writing is all of the stuff in your brain can't get out on the page, right? In order to have any sort of narrative that anybody's going to read, you can't put all the details in. Well, that's what Daniel's done. He's made a literary decision here in his book, uh, guided by the Holy Spirit, right? Second Timothy tells us all scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out. It's useful for instruction, teaching, training, all of that, right? So this is not essential to this, but between four and five, there is a vast amount of history that takes place. Now, Uh, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because the last one was a little bit, you know, intimidating. But if I was to ask for a show of hands and I was going to talk about history and present history as a list of names and dates, I know that all of you would be super excited about that. So that's what I'm going to do. But I didn't give you a chance to opt out. You'll notice. Uh, And I've installed locks on all the doors. So you're stuck. But, but you look at this list of names and I just want to walk through this. So this is a list of names coming down to us from archaeology, from the study of history, from all these different disciplines that have come together and have put this list of kings together. Now that name at the top looks really familiar, right? That's Nebuchadnezzar, all right? 
That's the guy who's been the star of the show, so to speak. Not really, God is the star of the show in Daniel chapter four, but Nebuchadnezzar has been all over the first four chapters. Well, he reigned from about 605 to 562. I'm not good at math, but that seems like a lot of years in there, all right? The next guy, Amal Marduk, is his son. How many years does he reign? Two years, two years. But guess what? Daniel's serving under Nebuchadnezzar, and then he's serving under Amal Marduk. Then this next guy, Nerglasser, he's not very long in there either. How long is he in there? Four years, Daniel's serving under him. Labashi Marduk, how long is he in there? Yeah, so I was just listing years. He's got two months. He is on the throne for two months, all right? And then this next guy comes on, Nabonidus. And that name doesn't sound familiar, but the second name there after the, the little slash mark thing, Clearly, this is my skill set. Belshazzar. Now, that sounds familiar because we just looked at it. Daniel chapter 5, right? Belshazzar. Interesting stuff that happened there, but Daniel served under them too. Well, then the next two names there, Cyrus or Darius, right? Those two names come along and Daniel serves under them. Now, so I've just zoomed out and given us a pretty broad picture. But Daniel, in recording this in, verse, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, the break between there, he skips everybody in between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Now, what was happening in between there? That's something that's interesting to think about because Daniel didn't just serve one nation. There's actually two nations represented by this list and I can break those down for you right there, right? So the top list of names, that's all Babylon. What's Cyrus or Darius? Persia, Medo-Persia, right? And that's a second nation. How in the world does Daniel go from serving this one nation to serving another nation without much break in between? But it gets even crazier. Not only does he last between two nations that he's able to serve, he's able to serve over two different palace coups. Amal Marduk was taken out uh, by his brother-in-law, Nereglisser, I can't say that. Anyways, he was, he was deposed by him and the throne was usurped by Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law from his son. Daniel continued to serve. And then the usurper's son reigns for two months and he is assassinated in a coup attempt led by Belshazzar. And Daniel manages to serve under all of them. And then the nation is literally captured and he manages to serve under Cyrus. Now, if you're not a fan of history, you may not know this, but that's not normal. Well, no, no, I mean, this is perfectly normal as far as just the intricacies of succession in empires and in monarchies. You see this all the time, right? Power is one of the most desirable things in the world and people will do just about anything to get it. And right here in this short snapshot of history, we see people doing just about anything that they can to get power. But that's not our focus, right? When we're looking at, at Daniel, right? I wanna, I wanna take you all the way back and some of you have slept since then and it's a long weekend. So I'm assuming that you're all, you know, full from last night's barbecue, but whatever. Go with me for a second. Understand the perspective that we're trying to look at Daniel from. How did Daniel, how did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, how did these guys stay faithful, not just in the craziness we see recorded here, but through the craziness that we see recorded in history. 
that wasn't even thought to be worth mentioning in that gap between chapter four and chapter five. How did they do it? How did they manage this? Because here's the reality, guys. We live in a world that is changing faster than any of us can imagine, right? I don't know how many of you are sick of hearing the word or the initials AI, but I'm about at my saturation point. That's all the news is talking about. And if it's not that, then it's politics. And if it's not that, then it's some drama happening in pop culture. If it's not that, then we're still hearing about war in Europe and we're still hearing about tensions with China and we're hearing about the economy melting down. We're hearing about all this craziness. And so has much changed really in the last 2000 some odd years? No. God's people have always had to ask the question, how do we continue in faithfulness even when times get crazy, even when there's succession crises, even when there's financial crises, even when there's social crises? How do God's people stay faithful? We're going to look at the text, I promise, we're getting there. Right? We're going to do that, but when we do, I want you to understand something. My goal this morning is not to address the specifics of this text as far as it goes. You guys are all familiar with it probably, the handwriting on the wall, Belshazzar gives the feast, the hand shows up, he's terrified, he calls for somebody to interpret it, and at the end of the chapter, the kingdom gets taken away and he gets killed. I'm going to read it though, because Kamar made me feel bad a couple weeks ago. Right, but, but I want us to understand something. What I want us to see is in the midst of that craziness, how does Daniel continue in faithfulness? How does Daniel navigate this situation? I'm gonna use a word that can come sometimes freighted with meaning, and so I want to then unpack that word together, and that word is allegiance. The way that Daniel is able to navigate his day is the same way that you and I will be able to navigate our day. It's an issue of allegiance. Look at the text with me here. We're going to start reading in verse 1, and we'll just carry on through there. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. Actually, you know what? We're not going to carry on for just a second. I forgot to say something. So, Belshazzar and Nabonidus, right? So Belshazzar leads the coup against Labashi Marduk. He's the one who, he may not be holding the knife, but he's the one who plans this overthrow. But he's smart. And he can look at the fact that there's been mass chaos and several guys who've held the throne in the last decade have gotten killed for their troubles. And so he's smarter than that. And instead of him taking the throne, he puts his dad on the throne. And that's Nabonidus, all right? So Belshazzar is Nabonidus's son. He puts his dad on the throne like worst Father's Day ever. Hey, dad, I got you a throne. The last two guys to hold it died, but hey, you know, you can have it. But essentially, Belshazzar sets up Nabonidus as a a puppet king. Nabonidus is very rarely in Babylon, history tells us. He was frequently off uh, on military campaigns, even on like a religious exile, for lack of a better way of putting it. The history is really interesting. Belshazzar is functionally reigning as king without holding the title, all right? This guy is throwing a party for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in their presence. 
Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So back up here, I know you guys love history. Nebuchadnezzar took the the captives from Israel and took them off to Babylon. Eight years later, he went back and he sacked the city and he took all of the temple treasury with him. But it seems like he just set it in the treasury somewhere and hadn't made use of any of it. But these were, the, these were the objects that would be used by the priests in the worship of Yahweh. These were the temple implements, if you will. And Nebuchadnezzar and all of his successors had just left them sitting there. Well, Belshazzar, this shadow ruler, this regent, he gives orders, he says, pull them out so that the king and his nobles, wives and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been in Jerusalem, taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. All right, so they are committing sacrilege. They're committing sacrilege at this point, taking what is holy, taking what is special, taking what is set apart for God and treating it as if it were no different than any other thing out there. Now, kids, you are here this morning right? And you have had about enough, as much history as your brains can handle. Go ahead and nudge your parents because they're half asleep too. Nudge them real quick, kids. Nudge your parents. All right, good job. But now I need you to do something for me, kids. I need you to come up here. Anybody that wants to. Now I'm bribing you. I freely admit it. I'm bribing you. Some of you are having flashbacks to last week and you're like, oh no, we're doing it again. More candy. No. Um, so this, this is a bowl of candy. You see that bowl? Yeah. Yes. Yes? Okay. Now, only if your parents are okay with this. Go ahead and look at your parents. See if they're okay with it. Are you getting thumbs up? Are you getting nods, yeses? Uh, ooh, sorry, guys. Your dad's saying no. What's your mom saying? That's what I always do. I always checked with mom. Uh, <laughs> all right. You guys can go ahead and get a piece of candy. Now, what else do you see in there? Do you see? What is it? There's a ring in there. There's a ring in there. Now, now, what, what is that ring for? Do you know what that ring is? No. Go ahead and pick your candy. You can pick your candy. Now, now, Finn, what do you got on your finger there, man? Are you picking that? You're taking that as your piece out of the dish? You're taking the ring? So let me tell you about this. Did you guys find a piece of candy you like? You can dig in there. There's good stuff down at the bottom. Well, there's good stuff on top, too. I mean, it's not like I was just hiding the good stuff. All right, everybody got one you like? Got one you like? Okay, good? All right. Now, there was a ring in there. Now, how is a ring different from candy? You can't eat it. You're exactly right. If you tried to eat it, you would break your tooth, right? Go ahead, hold it. No, don't, don't try it. You can hold it. You can pass it around. Now, but one thing about a ring is it's, it's, just, it's just a piece of metal, right? But there's something about this ring that's really special. It's my wedding ring. That's exactly right. Now, what makes a wedding ring special? Who do you think gave me this ring? Um, <laughs> what was it, Maylee? 
My wife gave me this ring. I was going to say that too. Yes, you were. I knew you were. You were getting there. But that's right. My wife gave me this wedding ring. It has meaning beyond just the metal that's in it, right? I could take this metal and I could sell it. I wouldn't get a ton of money for it. And I certainly wouldn't have as much meaning in it as what it is because she gave it to me. We'll be celebrating 18 years of marriage this summer. How many of you are 18 years old? We'd, ha we'd have to stack some of you on top of the others to make 18, right? 18 years ago, my wife gave me this ring. That means it has a ton of special meaning for me, right? You're 18, all right? Now, the candy, the candy that you got has not as much special meaning, does it? No, it sure doesn't. It does. It means so much. It has so much meaning, Zane. Right? Candy is something that's consumed. It's gone. It doesn't last. Right? Wouldn't it be weird if you guys had taken the ring and treated it like candy, tried to eat it, yeah. tried to swallow it? Yes. Not, only, not only would that have hurt, but it would have also been somewhat bad for me, huh? Do you think that would have made me sad? Yeah. Yeah, I probably would have been a little upset about that. That's how God felt when King Belshazzar took what was precious to him, what he had given to his people Israel. When King Belshazzar took it and he put it to the wrong use, he used it for something it wasn't meant for, like using a ring for candy. It just doesn't make sense. So as you guys go back, you can go back to your seats, take your candy. Oh, I should have said you could have got some for your parents too, but never mind. Sorry, parents, you're out. <laughs> Right, that, that we take things that are precious, that, that have meaning not just because of what's in them, but because of the purpose for which they were given. This ring represents a commitment. It represents love. It represents our relationship, Megan and I, right? To misuse it. If I were to go in to sell it just for the cost of the, the metal, Right? Or if somebody were to take it and say, you know what, this would make a fantastic decoration in my fish tank, that would be a problem. That's essentially what's happened here. Just like I would be upset, and, and kids you're, would have been upset with the dentist bill had anybody taken the ring and tried to eat it. Right? But if, if, if we see something that is precious, something that has meaning and purpose beyond just its raw materials, being put to a wrong use being treated incorrectly, we respond with a little bit of frustration with being upset. Is it any surprise then at God's response? Right? Belshazzar takes these things, holy things, things that had been not just, they didn't just have meaning because of what the metal was. And that's what I think Daniel makes that point here when he says, you know, they were drinking this wine out of these goblets, which were golden vessels. They're precious vessels, but he's drinking them, praising their gods made of gold and silver. They didn't need more gold. It wasn't about the, the cost of the metal, the cost of the goblet. It was about the purpose for which God had given these to his people. And they were being misused now. So Belshazzar does this under the influence of wine. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him, kids, you'll appreciate this, that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. All right, now that may not be the phrase that shows up in all of your translations, but the, but the language here, uh, the Aramaic here, uh, is saying essentially uh, the joints of his loins were loosed, 
yeah, he soiled himself. <laughs> That's what it means, right? So this guy's terrified. He's been partying. He's been having a great time. He's been misusing these precious vessels that God had given, and now he is afraid. So he does what we've seen the king throughout the book of Daniel do. Call for somebody who can explain what just happened. There's a hand that showed up and began writing on the wall. What is this? Why is this happening? How come I'm seeing this? Well, none of his advisors, this is something we should be used to by now. You're tracking along with me. I'm not going to read all this, but none of his advisors can tell him what's going on. Queen comes in and she says, hey, don't be afraid, right? Inherited from all of these previous uh, government agencies, inherited from all of these other kings, there's a man who is able to interpret this. Call for Daniel. So he calls for Daniel. Daniel shows up. He shows up and, he, and, he, and the king tells him, look, I've heard that you can do this, that you can read this. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give, it, give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. That's one of those interesting things, just side note. Uh, that's one of those interesting pieces in the Bible. He's given the third highest position in the kingdom. Why is it third? Why not second? Well, because Nabonidus is king, Belshazzar is second, and he says, Daniel, you can be third. What's interesting is history said that the book of Daniel was false for many years because there was no historical record of Belshazzar. All that history knew about was Nabonidus. And so they're like, see, Daniel's just made up. Who's this Belshazzar? There's nobody named Belshazzar. Well, then lo and behold, archaeology comes around and backs up what the Bible says. He's offered the third position because Belshazzar himself is only second. And now archaeology has found that to be the case. Interesting side note. Anyways, he says, you're going to have the third highest position in the kingdom. Look at Daniel's answer. You may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. Daniel's never had a hard time speaking his mind. He's always been respectful. He's always been, been careful to recognize, yes, you are the earthly authority. Yes, you are in charge. But right here, his frustration is quite evident. Why is his frustration quite evident? Because he sees the misuse to which the things of God are being put. He is not upset on his behalf. He's not angry because he's been kind of stuffed away in a corner somewhere. He is upset because he comes in and he sees what he knows to be holy to his God being misused by the ruler of his nation. Keep your gifts, keep your rewards, but I will read this. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all people's nations and language were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and he, his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the most high God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over. He's just recounting chapter four. He's just recounting chapter four. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, 
have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you and as you and your nobles, wives and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or understand, but you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand and this writing was inscribed. Belshazzar, you should have known better. You should have known better. And, and what Daniel doesn't say that this slide up here recounts for us, what he doesn't say is you who gained power through assassination, you who have manipulated your way into the position that you hold, you still should have known better. He is holding his ruler accountable. That's a bold move. So I return to that question again. How was Daniel not only able to survive all of this court turmoil, how was he able to still be in a position to speak to the king like this? How is he able to serve through all of that upheaval? This is the question I think that we need to understand in our day. This is the question that we need to understand. Daniel does not continue to serve through that upheaval because he has tied his prospects to a particular ruler, right? Nebuchadnezzar goes, Daniel stays. Nereglisser goes and Daniel stays. Babylon goes and Daniel stays. He hasn't tied it to a particular ruler. He hasn't tied it to a particular family. He hasn't tied it to a particular nation. How is he able to do this? Because his allegiance is given to God. Not to a nation, not to a family, and not to an individual ruler. Now, we are citizens of a country, are we not? Do we have the responsibility of citizens to offer a allegiance to that nation? I think most of us would say, yes, we do. Is it a privilege to live in a country like we do? It is. With apologies to Lee Greenwood though, I refuse to say that I'm proud to be an American because I didn't earn anything. Right? Pride indicates like I had something to do with this. This is, this is simply the accident of my birth. There's no reason why I'm American and not North Korean. I'm grateful to be an American because the God who sits enthroned in heaven placed me here. But here's the thing. My allegiance to the place of my birth cannot be the greatest allegiance that I have to offer. Because as a Christ follower, what I have said is Jesus is Lord. Not only is he Lord, but he's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. Daniel got this before I ever did. Daniel understood that if he was going to be faithful to God, it meant he had to offer allegiance to God over any particular ruler, over any particular family, over any particular nation. Brothers and sisters, have we done that? Have you and I taken that step? 
Is the God that we serve still God in Ladelia, Ecuador? Is the God that we serve still God in Poland, where we have a team right now? Is the God that we serve still on his throne in Australia, clear on the other side of the world? The answer is yes. But far too often, far too often, the people of God have tied their faith to a particular ruler or a particular family or a particular nation. Brothers and sisters, nations come and go. Families, political parties come and go. Individual rulers come and go. Daniel's allegiance was given to God. And in so doing, he's able to speak to generations of rulers across national borders and through the centuries down to us. One of the things that he speaks is, your kingdom's coming to an end, Belshazzar. Now keep in mind, this is the only country that Daniel has ever known. He was taken from his home when he was a young man, probably in his teens. This is the country that he grew up in. This is the nation he has served. He is not excited to deliver this message of judgment because it doesn't just affect Belshazzar. It affects him and it affects his brothers and sisters, his fellow Jews who are also enslaved with him in Babylon. It affects people he knows, people he loves. And yet he says, this is what God has said. Verse 25, this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And this is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means you've been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez means your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order. They clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. The very thing he said, I don't want. Belshazzar is like, oh no, no, you gotta have it. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Because Daniel's allegiance was not given to Babylon, but to God, because it wasn't given to Belshazzar, but to God, then when the kingdom is overthrown, he's able to continue his influence. This, friends, is vital for us to understand today. We cannot give our ultimate allegiance to anything or anyone that can sin. If we want to live like Daniel, right? We've said from the beginning, we want to take from Daniel, we want to learn from him, we want to uh, take his example. We cannot give our allegiance to anything that can sin. Now, don't get me wrong here, right? You, you can have a U.S. passport, even though the U.S. government is fallible. You can honor those who have given their lives for this country, 
You can honor the flag of our nation. You can serve in the government, but it cannot be your ultimate allegiance. You cannot tie your understanding of the kingdom of God to this country because this country, like every other, its rulers like any other, and, and who's, who's in charge in this country? We are. So this should be even more pertinent for us, right? That we are sinners. If we're in charge, guess what? We can't say that this is the ultimate thing. We can't give our ultimate allegiance to anything that can sin. Here's the good news. We're not asked to. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Who is the author of Hebrews talking about? Jesus. You know, the Jesus that we just sang about, the one that we said, all hail King Jesus, right? The Jesus who has a beautiful name, a glorious name, a powerful name. He didn't sin. Our ultimate allegiance has to go to him because everything else is going to fail, not just us, but fail others. Going to fail through sin. We should not give our ultimate allegiance to anything that will change, right? How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you would say this country looks a whole lot better today than it did when I was growing up? Some of you remember the 50s. Some of you remember the 60s. Some of you don't remember the 60s. Some of you remember the 70s. Some of you remember the 80s. I was born in the 80s. And people are like, oh, you must love all this 80s nostalgia stuff. No, the 80s was the worst decade ever. No offense to anybody who likes 80s music, but no. The 90s, you remember the 90s? What's interesting to me is almost everybody says, no, the world has not gotten better. That's because it changes. Change is inevitable in a sinful world. Change is inevitable in a system that is being overseen by sinners. And some of that change may be good, but some of it can be really bad. And I don't hear many voices saying that it's been really good. So don't give your ultimate allegiance to anything that can change. Not to the things of this world. Not to the joys of this life. All of those are fleeting. Yesterday, we said, see you later to one of our members. We had a funeral service. And this lady had the most incredible testimony at the end of her life. As she's laying in the hospital, she's singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And she said, Jesus, I'm ready to come home. She recognized this was not her home. She recognized that the changes that were happening in the world around her didn't take away from her faith because her faith was placed in Jesus and Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. So don't give your allegiance to something that can change. Give it to somebody that is permanent, who is unchanging, Jesus. Finally, don't give your allegiance to anything that won't last. The incredible truth of the gospel, 
the incredible truth of the good news that Jesus came proclaiming was that you can live forever. Jesus came and told us, yes, eternal life is yours. This is eternal life to know the one who was sent by the Father. He will last. Those who are in him will last. Everything else is going to be dissolved, as Peter says. It's going to burn up. Don't give your ultimate allegiance to something that's not going to last. Give it to Jesus instead. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, outside the gate, outside of the political boundaries that we draw, outside of our web of allegiances that we have created for ourselves. Let's go to him out there and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Friends, if you marvel at Daniel's story, if you marvel at how he could be faithful through all of those changes, through all of that upheaval, I'm telling you, the secret is right there. It's available to you. Are you somebody who is given to fear and worry and anxiety? Are you wringing your hands over the state of this nation, over the state of your family? Could it be that you've placed your trust in the wrong things? Could it be that you have made something that is sinful, something that is fallible, something that is going to change, something that's not going to last? Can you be that you've put in it the trust that only God deserved? For, for some of us, this would be political. For some of us, this would be financial or social. Families can be great idols Money can be a great idol. And we can take the things of God and put them to unholy use in serving our idols, just like Belshazzar did. Or, or we can stand with Daniel and say, no, my allegiance is given to Christ, to his kingdom. And I will gladly seek the good of the city where I have been sent. I will gladly live faithfully Obeying the governing authorities, I will gladly, gladly love every person that I come in contact with, but I will not give my allegiance to any but Christ. Because Christ alone doesn't sin. Christ alone is not going to change on me. Christ alone is going to last. We do not seek a city here that will not last, but we seek a city that is to come that will endure forever. Brothers and sisters, take heart, take hope, look to Christ. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Daniel. We thank you for his faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, God, that you did not leave us to our own devices, but instead you've given us this call this hope, joy, 
everlasting held out to us as an option. Let us not choose that which does not last. God, I ask that you would stir in us a devotion to you and your kingdom that allows us to speak boldly into our current situation, but never to allow us to be demoralized by it, to look for you and towards your glory. Lord, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.